From the high desert of northern New Mexico, this is Circle for Original Thinking. I am your host, Glenn Alvarezio Perry. Welcome to Circle for Original Thinking, America's electronic talking circle for visionary thinkers. An open forum for fresh ideas and timeless wisdom applied to today's political and ecological challenges. Each week, we bring together creative thinkers from a variety of different traditions, we ask the hard questions on the important issues of the day, political polarization, climate change, virulent viruses, and other symptoms of humanity being out of balance with the natural world. Our goal is to recreate a whole in sacred America, a new and improved version of E Pluribus Unum, from the many to the one, and this time, not leave anybody out. Join us as we embark on this quest. Now, a tiny virus did what climate scientists and the Paris Accords could not do. It shut everything down. Mother Earth took a breath. The air and water became clearer and cleaner. More people planted gardens. We had time to think, and more importantly, time to reset our thinking. What is the human relationship with the microbial world? How did we get to the brink of environmental destruction in the first place? What are zoonotic diseases and why are they emerging now? How does this crisis end? Can we get back to normal? And do we want to? In the mid-20th century, a German philosopher, Jean Gebser, forecast a time like this when our normal sense of time and space itself would be turned upside down in preparation for the emergence of a new integral sense of awareness, a mutational evolutionary leap that transcends our illusory, limited view of our own evolution while transforming and integrating past structures of consciousness into a time-free, originary presence, or as he said, an ever-present origin. What lessons do ancient viruses and bacteria hold for us in understanding evolution and this exciting new emergent mutation of consciousness? Join us today as we explore the coronavirus, interdependent evolution, and the awakening of time-free consciousness with our guests, Jeremy Johnson and Barbara Carlson. Now, Jeremy is a philosopher He's an editor at Integral Leadership Review. He's a publisher at Integral Imprint and senior research associate at Perspectiva. His academic research, writing, and publishing advocates new forays into integrative thinking and praxis, aligning the scholastic, poetic, and spiritual as existentially crucial work for pathfinding at a time of planetary crisis. He is the author of Seeing Through the World, Gene Gebser and Integral Consciousness, an editor of Mutations, Art, Consciousness, and the Anthropocene, which came out, or I guess that's 2020, and host of the Mutations podcast. Jeremy currently serves as president for the International Gene Gebser Society and is working on a second book, Fragments of an Integral Futurism, projected to come out in 2021, and we, we really look forward to that. And you can read more about Jeremy on his Patreon site, and you can find him at Twitter at JDJ underscore writes. 
Now, Barbara Carlson, uh, PhD, is a continuum movement teacher, a nurse, and a somatic psychotherapist trained in birth psychology. She earned an MA in somatic psychology from Naropa and a PhD from California Institute of Integral Studies. She maintains a private practice in Marin County, California, where she teaches and practices the shamanic art of continuum and rebirthing. Her special areas of interest are earth-based spirituality and ancient Buddhist psychology. She contributed a book chapter to the Corona Transmissions, Alternatives for Engaging with COVID-19, and is an author of a forthcoming book called Becoming Terrestrial, Embodying the Intelligence of Nature, to be published by Inner Traditions. So welcome, welcome, Jeremy and Barbara. It's so good to have you on. I can't, you know, I'm very excited about the show, frankly, because you guys are, are you excite me. You excite my mind and my heart, and uh, what else can you ask for? <laughs> Thank you, Glenn. Good to be here. Okay. Um, so I just want to set up a, a first question for you for you both, and, and uh uh, and then we'll delve into this. So, you know, I, I'm thinking about the uh, one of the least considered aspects of the COVID crisis is how radically interrelated our evolution is with that of viruses and bacteria. Ninety percent of our cells are, micro- are microbial. Mm-hmm. Only ten percent are identified as human. In fact, we're we're, we're radically interconnected with all of nature. I mean, we, it's said that we have about 98% the same DNA as a chimpanzee, but we also have about 50% the same DNA as a banana. You know, it's, uh, we have a lot to learn about how we're interconnected with all there is, and we're going to delve into that today. So my, but my first question for both of you is, what does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be human? Who wants to jump in there first? I can Um, jump in. Barbara, you go, Barbara. You go. You go, girl. All right. (laughs) So I think this question, uh, Glenn, what does it mean to be human, is exactly the revolution that we're in right now, is redefining what it actually means to be human. And the Human Genome Project that was done in 2003, we went looking um, for this capacity to sequence the human genome, and we were expecting to find quite a lot. And what we found was actually uh, astonishing, that we only have 20 to 25,000 human genes, but what was even more startling was that we have 380 million microbial genes. So I think this was, as far as I'm concerned, a game changer in the sense that our identity as a separate human species or even this sort of, you know, uh, species that was um, sort of the, you know, the crown species uh, was decentralized and we realized that we are mostly microbial. We're in, in some ways we're a super organism because the, these microbial genes 
include bacteria, fungi, protists, and contains different lineages and even kingdoms. I mean, the fungi is different from the bacteria than the, you know, viruses. We have a virome. So it's not even just, it's an amalgamation <clears throat> of different species, genus, phyla, lineages, and kingdoms. Wow. Wow. So, Jeremy, what does it mean to be – that's a great answer. I, I, I can't even imagine where we're going to go today. It's going to be so much fun. And, by the way, thank you for mentioning fun guy because that's what I aspire to be, you know, a fun guy. So, anyway, uh, Jeremy, uh, what does it mean to be human? Oh, it's such a good question and difficult to answer. I think Barbara did a very good job – expressing somewhere where I wanted to go to in terms of that is the question that we're really trying to understand right now in culture. And I would say it's, it's an ontological question. What does it mean to be right? And what it seems to mean or what it is seeming to mean more than not is to be human is to be more than human. <laughs> so to be human is to be more than human, to be in relation to the other, not only human other, but the non-human other, especially what Barbara was pointing out about our, our, our biome, our microbiome be consisting of more than human, right? More genetic material than human material. So on a scientific basis, on an ontological basis, and then on a spiritual basis too, what does the human participate in that brings us into being? What is the more than human that we are always in relationship with? Um, and I would say... Maybe as 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 a to, to to flip it back into the what is a human doing? What is a human being? Then what what is our what is our place in this relationship? Well, a I think it's to participate, and then b I think it's to create with the world. To to we're, we we make language, we make art, right? We have spirituality. It is to find creative ways to crystallize and realize the aspects of, of the non-human in the human world, right? To explore that fold or that boundary between the human and the non-human. We're always jumping across that and bringing things back and then vice versa. And I think we've always been doing this as a species in one way or another, whether we're talking about science or art or magic. Uh, so we're, we're, we're a liminal species. Yeah. Mm. I love that. And I love the I love the expression the more than human you know my I know Dave Abram uses it a lot and and uh, mm -hmm. and uh, it's it's so much more expressive than the other than human <laughs> because it it gives proper respect to the enormous intelligence that's outside of what we usually define as human. So this is very good. Now, Barbara, I remember you wrote, you know, you wrote um, in, in a piece that I was reading, I, I think it might have been for the uh, Corona Transmissions, which is a great title, by the way, the Corona Transmissions, the transmission being of uh, transmission of intelligence. Um you wrote that we are an embodied record of various bacteria, fungi, viruses, kingdoms, genes, phyla, and worlds. I'd like you to elaborate about that a little bit more and talk to us about what you think the role of uh, bacteria and viruses is in evolution. Okay. So um, with um, the Human Genome Project, with this amalgamation 
of microorganisms, species, phyla, kingdoms that make up our biome, um, we also realize that we can trace our lineage, our human lineage, back to one single salt bacteria called LUCA that mm. came out of the sea 3.8 billion years ago. So our ancestors are bacteria. In other words, we have this ancestral lineage that we can trace all the way back to the very beginnings of life and really see that it was actually bacteria and viruses intersecting over billions of years that led to, you know, um, that led the way for us to actually develop and to evolve into what we call a human species. So, <clears throat> I mean, the bacteria and the viruses, if you look at the fact that we have been through five mass extinctions, it is the bacteria and the viruses that have survived and gone on to build to build the complexity and the diversity that we see around us now. And it is this capacity of bacteria and viruses to exchange genes that allows us to, uh, that allows the complexity and the diversity between lineages and phyla, and phyla to, to emerge. It's like, Bacteria and viruses are doing it with every species. They're not just doing it with their own species. They are actually doing it with all species. Every species on the planet has viruses. Every ecosystem has viruses. It's like wherever scientists go to look for viruses, they find them there. So it's like they have learned to do it in a way that um, allows the complexity and the diversity of the genetic uh, assemblage of who they are to intersect and fold in and emerge from this amalgamation. We have a lot to learn from that. You know, there's no such thing as this individual organism existing outside of, of, of this greater whole. Everything is attached to everything. Everything is touching and connected to everything. There's no way you can isolate a single virus, a single bacteria, a single fungi from the web of life. We can take it and put it in a sterile Petri dish, but that's not even <clears throat> the whole environment it comes from. Mm. They're not existing in sterile Petri dishes. Everything is connected to everything. Everything is touching everything else. It is humans that take these microbes and viruses and uh, isolate them, uh, studying them that way. But then we're really not studying the whole terrain because they are part of the whole terrain. They are in communication with everything else. Beautiful. So they're pushing, they're pushing evolution because of the way they exchange genes and stuff. How much have viruses and bacteria changed and evolved themselves? I mean, I, you? Yeah, well, I mean, I just read an article this morning about how genes right now, uh, bacterial genes in particular, are responding to the heavy metals in the environment, and it's making them resistant to antibiotics. So we have these bacteria and viruses that um, are under selective pressure, we'll say. It's like we're in a... a um, 
were under extinction level stressors. Every living organism on the planet, including the bacteria and the viruses. And they are masters at being able to mutate under stress and difficult survival conditions because they've done it for so long. I mean, we've only been on the planet for 200,000 years old. Uh, 200,000 years, sorry. And, you know, this salt bacteria that I just mentioned uh, that they identified was 3.8 billion years old. So we're kind right. of new kids on the block. So these bacteria and viruses that have been exchanging genes and exchanging genetic information and mutating <clears throat> are, 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 are doing it faster and better than we can at this point, even with our technology. Beautiful, beautiful. And that leads me, I want to ask Jeremy something. I want to bring in, uh, um, you know, often I pray to ancestors. So we're making a prayer here to Gene Gibbs, or we're going to invite him to join the conversation. Um, and uh, because what, you, what you're talking about is so fascinating because we have this, this vital relationship with bacteria and viruses because they're, they're so much a part of us. Like you're saying, you know, 90% of our cells, I think 95% possibly of our DNA or something. I mean, they're, they're pushing so much of evolution. They're also, they're both ancient and they're also doing something right now in the modern sense. So they, they kind of embody what Gebser was talking about, it seems to me, about the ever-present origin. So we're, um, and that is um, that sets up uh, Jeremy because I, I want to I want you to please walk our listeners through the the structures of consciousness that uh, that gaps are named and, uh, and 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 then you can explain about mutations in consciousness and what might be emerging now. So take us take us through a little little. Uh, 101 Gepser for and then uh, warm up our listeners. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, no problem, Glenn. Uh, yeah, so, so Gepser, as as you were hinting at with the with the word origin, um, has a a what we would call a history of consciousness. And I'm thinking actually of a, of a of an essay that uh, Aaron Cheek had uh, put together talking about Paul Klee about colors and how colors are not just the surface, but they spring up from the roots of the world. And that image of springing up from the roots of the world sounds very much like our bacteria friends, mm -hmm. right? And our origins here that Barbara was, was also describing. But the, the history of consciousness for Gepser is a series of these unfolding ontologies, uh, relationships with time, space, self, and world that our species, that our, that humanity has gone through over the past I don't know, well, since our origins, right, 200,000 years or so in our evolution, and then, then some, you know, the, the, the boundaries of where the, this really begins are, are a bit blurry. But Gebser articulates that this unfolding process unfolds from what he says is origin, right? And that's a difficult question, first of all, before we talk about the structures, what is origin? And we can't really answer that. I mean, we can say, as Gebser says, the spiritual. We could say, um, uh, you know, the, the word itself in German, Ursprung. 
mm-hmm. the primordial leap, right? And then the title of his book explains it all, the ever-present primordial leap. So the origin is ever-present. Uh, origin is ever-presently springing things into being, right? So there's there's an ever-presentness, uh, a contemporaneousness to origin. It is always present. It is always bringing in things into being creatively. So that's our relationship with origin. Now, in terms of the history of human consciousness, Skepser was able to articulate these major structures, as you were just mentioning, the archaic, and some some folks who maybe are, are familiar with, let's say, Ken Wilber's work might know this terminology, but they probably aren't familiar with it in this way. Uh, the archaic, the magic, the mythic, and the mental as these primary mutations that human beings have gone through. The archaic is a kind of, well, look at the word, right? Um, it's the closest to origin. And George Feuerstein described it as a, as a state of maximum latency, that all of the future mutations are latent like a seed mm. in the archaic structure, right? They're ever present. They're all interrelated with one another, like a seed or an embryo. And then that unfolds. And then we have the magic, which Gebser says is this kind of, um, permeability between the human being and the, and, and the rest of the world, a kind of, uh, almost like a cell wall, right? It's, it's actually quite open. It's actually quite permeable. It's always in communication, right? So the self and other, the human and the non-human are always in this kind of interrelationship, similar to what we are describing happening today, or at least this new ontology, which is bringing that back. But that's the magic and a sense of timelessness goes along with it. And then we have this other leap as the, the human and the non-human begin to put up a bit more of a boundary, and that is that is really when we bring the dispersal of spirits and energies and archetypes, uh, the aliveness of the world begins to center in the human. And so we have more of a, a sense of polarity and rhythmicity, right, along with the rhythmicity of time. So the cycles of se- of the seasons and astronomical calendars. And we, we can see this abundantly throughout the world, right? Um, and then that centering in the human, that folding into the human, continues and intensifies with the mental structure, mm-hmm. which moves us into a much more uh, uh, separative expression. So the subject and the object, the self and the world become more distantiated. And this gives us the opportunity to be, as he says, a waking consciousness begins to arise, a wakefulness begins to arise. And he quotes uh, Odysseus, right? Uh, M. Odysseus is one of the, 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 the famous starting lines in our, in our Greek literary history, in the West at least, right? So this proclamation of I am or emness or ego, has to do with this awakening mental consciousness. Uh, and the integral is a little different, right? It's not as material and waking and even secular oriented as we have become. But Gebser says that with the integral structure, the integral leap, we're moving into a period of, of transparency. So the whole history of consciousness is becoming transparent, and we're neither predominantly 
the the kind of twilight consciousness of the magic and myth when image and symbol and enchantment are alive in us and of course they continue to be alive in us but neither is the mental waking secular segmenting spatializing measuring world that the modernity has brought us it's it's transparent and through those things like paul clee talks about seeing through to the roots of the world and that's what's internalizing in the integral consciousness but with that that's the tricky part right there's the rub because it's it's such an intensity right so much is breaking down right now because we've predominantly been relying on the mental spatial world for so long and that's in the per- a period of, of disintegration right and as gepser says you know all of these leaps of consciousness go through a dramatic period of restructuration of disintegration and integration creativity and collapse right and it's a and again it's rather dramatic it's a, it's a leap into a new creative ontology and i think we're going we can explore that and unpack it together here but i think th- this is what gepser means by the integral age right all of the f- the sound foundations of the modern world at an ontological level are coming undone so what it means to be human how we understand time what the relationship between the natural and the unnatural and what that we've taken it for granted right that separation that sense of separation from the world with ego but now we can't anymore as, as barbara was just mentioning with especially with the with the new sciences and what they're pointing to mm. So I'm glad that, I hope that, that was a decent enough job. That it's was a big beautiful. <laughs> that was beautiful. Thank you so much. So you did that just with with great heart and perspicacity. <laughs> it's just right there. Um, you know, I want to I want to focus it a little bit on something that might be might be uh, not clear to listeners. There's a tendency, particularly in and this is something Gepser addressed, but there's a tendency for us to think in teleological terms and think of advancement and think of structures of consciousness as as making previous structures obsolete. I mean, that's how most Western philosophers, unlike Gepser, are positing things. Um, so I want to delve into that a little bit because... Um, uh, one of the things that Gebser focuses on a lot is is perspective, and it's in the perspective, the age of perspective. And we know when you know we know when linear perspective was used in art. You know, it's almost exactly six hundred years ago, fourteen fifteen. You know, Brunichelli pokes a hole in his canvas and puts a mirror on the other side, and he wants to paint the world as God saw the world. You know, and he and he had the the best of intentions, but. But it shifted everything because we began to see the world. Nothing would have happened probably except for that cat that came along, Alberti, and translated his, his, his book on how to do perspective. And it went viral. It got translated to five or six uh, European languages. And all of a sudden it became known as realism, right? So we, we, we began to think that linear perspective is real. And anything else is not real, you know. And I live in New Mexico where George O'Keefe famously said that the least real thing is realism. (laughs) So, I mean, it's because because there's there's something very limiting about that. And and, and, and so I'm concerned about this. How is the... uh, How do people understand that what is happening with this mutation, this breakthrough into integral consciousness is not, uh, uh, how do do we get them to 
feel inside them that it is not making obsolete these previous structures of consciousness, that we need these structures, we need the archaic, we need the magical, we need the mythical. And, you know, in the same way that we need these microbes, um, because there's something about perspective set up a distance from, from, from the, the seer and the world. And that becomes the beginning of something that Barber's written about, you know, that, that we're talking about seeing things as in oppositions, seeing things as oppositions. So that's the, the precursor of things like germ theory. I mean, a lot of this is very positive in the mental age. It allowed the, the flowering of Western science to occur. But it also created a shadow where we where we lost our interconnection with other beings. And we began to think that, you know, only in human terms, we're going to survive, right? So we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna destroy the microbes. What what do you have to say about that, Barbara? Well <clears throat> you know, I was um in um I think I'd like to read from Gepser here, if that's okay. Um, in preparation for this recording today, I was looking back at Gepser, as I mentioned earlier. And, you know, Gepser has shaped my ideas very much. I just wanted to say that. I have a science background and a background in psychology, but um, it was at CIIS that I became aware of Gepser. And I was always drawn to Gepser's mutational approach. And, I mean, even the fact that he was writing about mutation and the um, the hidden wearings and reorderings of mutations in his book, uh, written at this time in the 50s. Jeremy, when, when was that actually written, The Ever-Present Origin? Yeah, 19, 1947, yeah. I think, is when he started writing it. It was published in 49. I mean, when you actually read um, his, you know, his chapter on mutations and, you know, the reorderings of mutations and how everything, that's the beautiful thing about evolution. Evolution doesn't leave anything out. Everything is folded in, you know. It's, it's like the first bacteria, Luca, is still there. It's sequ they sequenced our genome and found it in our genome. This 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 uh, original uh, bacteria. So nothing is left out. The tr the whole traces of our evolution can be. And, and I mean, now that we have metagenomics and we have these new ways of dis, of sequencing, I mean, the coronavirus, we sequenced, sequenced it so quickly. We can tell whether it was rendered in a in a lab or if it wasn't. I mean, it's really amazing that, that what we're being able to discover now. And what we're discovering is that nothing is left out. Everything is there. It's just integrated and folded in and everything is reassembled and reordered. It's like uh, Gebser says, like mutations have their hidden um, orderings. Um, it's like these, um, uh, a, a constant uh, creativity of folding everything in and out of that new 
webs of possibility and new webs of relationships emerge from that folding in. But I just wanted to to read something from Gebser, um, Gebser's book, Ever Present Origin. It's it's you know it's a dense book, difficult to read, but. Every time I read it, it, I feel like I'm receiving some kind of insight into uh, who we are as humans. So he says, um, this present book is the account of, an, of the nascence of a new world and a new consciousness. It is based not on ideas or speculations, but insights into mankind's mutations from its primordial beginnings up to the present. Or perhaps novel, I mean, even the words novel, novel insights into the forms of consciousness manifest in the various epics of mankind. So it's this, as I've said before, mm. the generative understanding of how life emerges and unfolds. It's always generating more and it leaves nothing out and everything is folded into the whole. So even then in 47, he was writing in a generative way that captures, you know, my whole um, curiosity uh, being a somatic psychologist and working with bodies specifically and how bodies express themselves and, and how m much of that is non-rational, but that is from sort of an, uh, you know, and you could say it's this up or spring, but it's like I watch bodies kind of express something in a bit of a leap. There isn't all, often words that people can express, but they can do it with a movement. They can do it mm. with, you know, something outside of the normal, let's say, you know, understood way of expressing. So I, I feel like um, Gebster gives permission for this leap, for this leap of creativity, for this leap of becoming that maybe we have never seen before, but that, you know, uh, arises not out of something new, but out of everything that has led to where we are now. And that's why I fell um, in love with reading Gebser so much, yeah. that it was such a generative um understanding of life and still and still is and every time I go back to it I get uh, a different understanding I hope that answered your question oh it answers the question <laughs> because the question is opened so, so yes yes um, you know uh, I what I want to get into next and where is 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 more to delve into where uh, consciousness comes from uh, and uh, um, we're going to we're going to delve into that in in part two of this uh, wonderful interview with uh, Jeremy Johnson and Barbara Carlson and we're exploring. You know, we're exploring the coronavirus interdependent evolution and the awakening of time-free consciousness here mm -hmm. and the awakening of a mutation in our consciousness that will be liberate us from some of the, the limits that we've, that we've posed between ourselves and the natural world and all this stuff that we're getting into. It's all so exciting. So 
We will continue this discussion in part two. This program is made possible by Select Books, Waterside Publications, Bizgenics, and the Web Talk Radio Channel. Native Flute Music by Orlando Secatero from the Pathways CD. Liberty Song by artist Ron Crowder, written by Ron Crowder, Jim Casey, and Danny Casey. Post-production editing by Scout Media Strategies. The Circle for Original Thinking is a grassroots think tank whose mission is to seek out the deep origins of contemporary thought in order to remember and restore heart-centered wisdom for humanity and all our relations on Earth. For more information or to volunteer to help produce this podcast, go to originalthinking.us or originalpolitics.us. And you can also find and purchase my books, Original Thinking and Original Politics there. Please tune in to part two next week with Jeremy Johnson and Barbara Carlson. Thank you for listening. And until next week, many blessings of good health and well-being to you. Liberty, all liberty.